turn our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, which we've been studying together in this summertime, and we're thinking of the assertion in verses 4 to 6 that the Apostle makes there, and we read those verses as we come this evening to think of assurance of salvation. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. We're thinking primarily of the assertion of the apostle here in verse 4. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because... Within business uh, studies, uh, there is a whole area of study uh, around selling to to clients and interaction with them and how to respond uh, to their reactions so that you can develop in the fullest manner that interaction with a new or an old client. And part of the area of the study is on anticipating answers which the client might give. And one of the answers which is common within business and and a selling relationship is, I don't know. And so in seminars, this question is addressed by two businessmen in the moment of promoting their business, in the moment of of seeking to sell a product to a new or or a, a former client. How do you respond to the client when they answer, I don't know? They've analyzed this This answer and developed a whole range of approaches to address this. Sometimes the answer they claim means that the person doesn't want to speak to you. They don't want to to confess or or divulge or reveal to you their misgivings about the issue at stake. They, they, They want the conversation ended. They don't want to develop the relationship with someone whom they don't really know or haven't had to trust in the past. And so their response is a brush off. I don't know the answer to your question. The question might be, how do you define success? What do you understand by success? They might say to you, I don't know. They just want the conversation to end. And other times, they really don't know. They've never thought about this. This is a new question for them. It's a new area of thought and development for them. And that is an opportunity for you to progress that further. And so the whole study is about discerning which type of answer is being given when they say, I don't know. Do they want the conversation ended? Or is this an area that you can develop and explore because they have never yet considered this question. And this is an answer which which is found in theology as well. Perhaps when we are asked, are you a Christian? You might answer, I don't know. And sometimes you might use that answer as a brush off to end the conversation. Who is this person prying into the deepest recesses of your heart and soul? You, you don't want to divulge your inmost experience, doubts to them. Or perhaps it, it is a, a, an area that, that you have been wrestling with. 
And you really don't know what the answer is. And so it's, it's useful for us, isn't it? It's important for us. We've all addressed this question. We've all thought about this question. Are we a Christian? Has God chosen us? Will we end up in heaven? Are we one of God's elect people? The apostle here, stunningly, doesn't he? Writing to this young church, three months old, he makes this bold assertion in verse number four. We know that God has chosen you. And it's a wonderful encouragement and assurance for that congregation and the members of that congregation. The apostle is speaking broadly about them. We know that God has chosen you. But the apostle doesn't leave us wondering about the the basis of this claim. He goes on helpfully for us. And and this is our study this evening in verses 5 and 6 to to unpack what lies behind this assertion by the apostle. How does he know? What is the basis for this claim? Some commentators, as we've already indicated, link it with the previous verse, verse 3, those graces that we've studied, faith, hope, and love. And as the apostle sees the expression of those basic graces in the Thessalonians, he goes on in verse 4, the joining word, for we know that he has chosen you. Therefore, we know that he has chosen you. But here in verses 5 and 6, He he is giving us the reason because he has chosen you because. And then he goes on to describe three things that we'll think of this evening, which are evidences in these verses of being chosen by God, receiving the word, power and preaching and joy in our affliction and our suffering. Let's, Let's think of these and 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 relate them uh, to ourselves. We can't see into God's book of life in heaven, can we? We're not privy to the names that are written down there in the Lamb's book of life of all the chosen who will be in heaven. And so we're left to to piece together the evidences that we find in Scripture and in the lives of God's people to identify those, ourselves, others, who are chosen by God. We visited the Irish Heritage Centre down in Wexford, and it was a a fascinating place and and an interesting uh, tour guide who was able to give us uh, the background and and insights into the the different stages of of Irish history. But but there they have sought to, to, to build back from the the times of the 400s and 500s, replicas of of the houses which monks used and and, and studied in and and, and met together in in communal meetings. And they've looked at the research, they've they've pulled together the evidence, and then they have erected this structure, this replica of, of what the buildings were in times past. And it's something like this that we're doing, isn't it? They didn't have the original. They can't see into the past and and see precisely what the buildings were like, but but they pull together the evidence. And they say, this is what it's like. And as we think of this subject this evening, we cannot see 
into the Lamb's book of life in heaven. We do not have that inerrant and infallible knowledge into God's book. But the apostle here is setting out the tangible, visible evidences of those who have been chosen by God. And he sets out three for us. Firstly, we receive the word. We receive the word. In verse number six, he describes them as doing this. For you received the word. This is a fundamental aspect of those who have been chosen by God. They receive his word. The definite article is before word here. It is the word. The authoritative word. The final word. The word of God from heaven through the apostles. The word found in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, as the prophets and apostles declared this. The word announced by Jesus Christ. The word of grace. The word of salvation. Verse number 8, as we saw this morning, its expanded form is the word of the Lord has been brought to them. This was central in the, the ministry of the apostles in Thessalonica. In the account of their visit to Thessalonica in Acts 17, we find Paul and Silas and Timothy going down to the synagogue for three Sabbath days in a row. And they open up the scriptures, Acts 17 says, and they reason from the scriptures that Jesus, who was prophesied in the Old Testament, has now come and is the promised Savior. At the very center of that word, is grace and salvation and life in Jesus Christ. And someone who has been chosen by God receives the word. They receive it with their minds. They're persuaded intellectually and in their head of its authenticity, of the truth, of the historical coming of Jesus, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. They are persuaded that as we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. We are persuaded of the truth and authenticity of God's word. But alongside of that intellectual conviction, uh, there is that emotional delight. The verse number six speaks about the joy. They receive the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. There is this emotional delight in God's word. They've been brought up with the pagan philosophies of their time, with the words of the philosophers. But they delight in God's word like the psalmist in Psalm number one. There is this emotional response in the receiving of the word. And there is this trust in the one of whom the word speaks They believe in Jesus. They receive the promises of grace and of salvation. They bring this word into their life and it makes a difference. They do not park it beside them, but this word transforms them. It steers them. It guides them in how they live and in what they do. First evidence that the apostle cites here, or one of them that he cites here, is that they receive the word. And Jesus used an agrarian illustration of this very thing, didn't he? To make his point, the same point, in his parable of the sower. He described various listeners to the gospel as the sower went out to sow the seed. Some fell on the hard path. People who were uninterested 
in the word of God. They liked the miracles of Jesus, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of the sick, but they had no interest in the gospel that he proclaimed. It was like the hard path at the edge of the field. Then there was other types of soil. The soil where the seed penetrated but lasted for a little while because of the weeds that were there, because of the sun that burned up the seed. And then there was the good ground. And Matthew puts it like this. Those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. There's the evidence of a true believer, of one chosen by God in this parable of Jesus. They receive the word and bear fruit. And this is the evidence that the apostle cites here in the Thessalonians. He went into the town. Others rejected it. Others chased the apostles out of the town and barred them from returning to it. But here were a group who received the word. Here was an evidence that God had chosen them. That they were his people. They received the word. And if you're not yet a Christian, this is what you're to do. You're to receive God's word. There's to be this intellectual understanding and persuasion of the truth of God's word. That God's scripture is the authoritative word of God. That God consists of three persons of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That as human beings we are fallen and sinful in every single part of our humanity. That Jesus Christ is the only saviour sent down from heaven into this world. And that on the cross outside of Jerusalem he bore the sin of the world. And the judgment of God on the sins. A judgment that we deserve. As we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. We will be forgiven of all of our sins. That the church is God's special people called out of the world. And that Jesus Christ will come again. He will raise the dead. He will announce and administer the final judgment. We receive the word in our minds, in our heads. We have that intellectual conviction and understanding. Something which is found throughout this letter to this young church in Thessalonica. All of those details. We receive That word that is authentic, that is true, that is from heaven. And we delight in that message of grace. We understand our guilt. We understand our sinfulness. And so we delight in Jesus Christ, the only Savior. We receive him. We delight in the promises of his word. When we have a spare moment, we get onto Bible Gateway on our phone and read another chapter. As we're riding up in the lift to the fifth floor, we're thinking of a text of scripture. We not only have this intellectual conviction, but we have a delight in God's promises and God's grace. And we commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. We receive the word. The Ten Commandments aren't out there on the street. They're inside our hearts. We're living by God's word. Boys and girls, we went down to a fort uh, down in Wexford. A really interesting place down on the the seaside. 
and Oliver Cromwell had been there in the 1600s. And as we were walking through this fort, we stumbled on a cannonball. Can you imagine that? A cannonball nearly 400 years old. It was fascinating. There were pellet holes in this cannonball. It was amazing to hold. No one knew it was there. Everybody else was oblivious to this cannonball. But our family said, you shall not steal. <laughs> because we try to receive the word. It lives in our life. It dominates our behavior in our home, in our community, in our church. Here's an evidence of being chosen by God. Multitudes of unbelievers in Thessalonica, but here was a group who received the word. Chosen by God. The New Nards tonight, there's multitudes who have no interest in the gospel. But you are here at a Sabbath evening service. And it's an evidence that you're chosen by God. The second evidence that the apostle cites in verse number five, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That alongside of the word that was proclaimed and received, there was power, not word only. The preaching was there, the declaration of the truth, the opening up of the Old Testament and showing that Christ prophesied there in Micah and Isaiah and Psalms has come. But alongside of that word, a proclamation, there was power, the Holy Spirit, and full conviction. Power. Some uh, writers refer this to to unction, uh, to, to a special presence of God in the service. And, and no doubt you've experienced that from, from time to time as you think back of some outstanding moments in this church building or in other places of worship where the presence of God was real and, and the preacher seemed to be transformed into another person as, as God's spirit came down on the congregation. That could be what it means. That there was a special presence of God there in Thessalonica. As the apostle and, and Silas and Timothy proclaimed God's word. It wasn't only the, the, the communication of, of a truth and of facts and of historical details. But there was power there. The spirit working in people's hearts and lives. But I think the better understanding of this is that it refers to miracles. Uh, that, that were performed. The, the parallel passage uh, to this use of power is in Romans 15, verses 18 and 19, where the apostle is also speaking about his ministry to the Gentiles. And, and he says, What Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles uh, to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. The power of signs and wonders. And so it seems that as the Apostle Paul was down in Thessalonica in the strategic city. 
He proclaimed the gospel in the synagogues and and in other places it would appear. And alongside of that proclamation of the gospel of Christ, there were miracles and prophecies and speakings in tongues. There was power of supernatural signs to to authenticate the gospel and and to to show to those, those new believers, this is the truth. This is the word from heaven. This is the authentic religion that God has brought to your city. And so power and the Holy Spirit would be interchangeable phrases. The Spirit working in supernatural works for the apostle Timothy and Silas. The phrase full conviction has been understood in three different ways. Is it the conviction of the preachers as they have brought God's word? They've come with courage. They've come with absolute assurance as they've spoken of Jesus being born in Bethlehem from Micah 5. Of Jesus being anointed with the Spirit from Isaiah 11. Of Jesus being crucified from Psalm 22. They spoke with conviction. What the prophets have prophesied has really come to pass. The conviction was in them or was the full conviction among the people. That as they heard that such was the regenerating work of the Spirit that they were convicted. Perhaps the best understanding is that, that the whole experience, the preaching and the miracles brought this full conviction that God was there, that God was present, that God was working, that they were the chosen people of God, that he had loved and chosen them. This full conviction that God was working within this group of people. What persuaded you to buy your latest car wasn't just that it had four wheels, seats, an engine. Maybe it was the color. Maybe it was a touch screen technology. Maybe it was the, the heated steering wheel. There's often things additional that persuade us in a certain direction. And so the apostle says here, not in word only. There was the preaching, the opening up of the word of God, but also there were the supernatural signs of power by the Holy Spirit resulting in full conviction that God had chosen that congregation. We're not looking for signs, for tongues, for prophecy today, for miracles. But we are looking for the power of God at work alongside the proclamation of his word to assure us that God has chosen us. Looking for it in our covenant children to see them attentive in church, present in church, to see them desiring to join the congregation, to see them willing to serve in our Bible club and in the congregation in in any way at all, alongside of the, the word, to see the power that God is among us, working, blessing, choosing. To see people who are older grow in their faith. 
hungry to develop and advance, become more refined in their actions and their reactions, to see the power of God and sanctification and progress and development. Here's another evidence of God choosing his people alongside of the word there is power, there is change, there is blessing, there is progress. And thirdly, the third evidence that the apostle gives us here is joy and suffering. In verse number six, you received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. We thought this morning of the the people being imitators of Paul and of the Lord in verse number six, a common theme in the first century because there were no manuals of ethics and values. Philosophers would not only teach their values and ethics, but they would demonstrate their, their ethics in their life. And this is what we have here. The apostle teaching the ways of the Lord and living the ways of the Lord and the Thessalonian believers imitating the ways of the Lord. This is the the way of discipleship, isn't it? Jesus says to his disciples, follow me. We, We imitate him. We follow him. We walk in his path. Paul exhorts the Corinthians to follow me as I follow Christ. He exhorts Timothy to be an example, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, in 1 Timothy 4.12, and there to follow him. This idea of imitation is, is found throughout the whole of Christianity and the whole of Scripture. But in this particular instance, The imitation that that is dominant in the apostle's mind is is not that general imitation of love and of grace and of kindness, but it's the imitation of perseverance and affliction. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus persevered through affliction to serve God and to honor God, and just as Paul, who had been beaten up in Philippi before he came to Thessalonica, had persevered in affliction and oppression, so these Thessalonian believers now, rejected by their families, ridiculed by their trade guilds, despised by their city, are showing that they are chosen by God, Because they are persevering in affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. It's been a privilege for me as pastor here to visit various people who have suffered prolonged illnesses. That this present time is a wonderful privilege for me to visit Anna Kerr, 95-year-old, suddenly taken away from her farm, from her brothers, from her normal life, from her driving, from her church, and now in hospital. And she's suffering. 
but she has peace. She has an acceptance of the affliction that has come to her, not in a stoical way, but submissive to the will of her heavenly Father. And as you and I talk to her, look at her, listen to her, we can't but see the grace of God in our heart. Another evidence that we are chosen by God is that we persevere through affliction with a submissive attitude to our Heavenly Father's purpose with joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus spoke about this, didn't he, in his Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Joy, even in our affliction. It is a a reason why many turn back, isn't it, that affliction comes as Jesus illustrated in that parable of the sore. People turn back when they are isolated, when they are ridiculed, when they are pinpointed because they're a Christian. Some turn back, but an evidence of true faith, of saving faith, of being chosen by God, the apostle cites here with great joy and gratitude to God. that the Thessalonian believers were going on empowered by the Spirit with joy through their trouble. But it's not the work of the Spirit alone, is it? It's not just down to the individual and, and, and their Christian life and their walk with Christ. It's not just down to the Holy Spirit and Him energizing the believer. It's also down to you and I to encourage and love and sympathize with the person who's suffering. Later on, Paul will speak about the brotherly love which abounds in the Thessalonian church and alongside of the individual and their faith in Christ and the spirit living within them, there is the encouragement of the church of Christ. For a moment, you and I should look around in our mind's eye and our understanding and think of some of the afflictions within this congregation. People who have bereavement, people who have illness, people who are married to unbelievers, people who are in a family of unbelievers and the trials and the difficulties and the hardships that they can face. And you and I, can reach out with sympathy and love and compassion and understanding and encouragement to them alongside of the Spirit's work and their walk with Christ is your input, our encouragement, our love. Jesus experienced it, didn't he? Down in the very depths of his affliction in Gethsemane, there appeared an angel from heaven strengthening him. 
alongside of the Spirit inside him, alongside of his perfect humanity, was this other helper who encouraged him in his life. The evidences the apostle gives us here, they're they're not all the evidences in the Bible, but they're the ones he gives here. Receiving the word, hook, line, and sinker. Power alongside of the preached word. Seeing evidences of God at work in our lives and in the lives of the congregation. Perseverance and submission in affliction. Our light may burn low at times, but it doesn't burn out. Perhaps you doubt. You wonder. You lie awake at night questioning if God has chosen you. It's maybe a real problem to you, struggle to you. Many Christians and theologians have wrestled with this and, and one of the most interesting discussions in the 1700s uh, was between uh, groups of believers within the same church. And one group of believers maintained that assurance of salvation belongs to the essence of faith. And the other group of believers denied that assurance of salvation belonged to the essence of faith. And both of them had a point. The first group believed that assurance that Jesus was the only saviour belonged to the essence of faith. The second group maintained that assurance that Jesus was my saviour didn't belong to the essence of saving faith. And that distinction helps us. If you're wrestling with the second element, that Jesus is my saviour, you should focus on the first element, that Jesus is the only saviour. And as you think of his glory, and as you think of his love, and as you think of his all-sufficient sacrifice on the cross, you by grace and faith will move into the second element, that Jesus is my saviour.